It's me, David Webb, and here's a highlight from today's show on Sirius XM Patriot. My guest, Alan Dershowitz, professor, lawyer, media contributor, author, well, author of so many books, even writes about it in his newest book, The Price of Principle, Why Integrity is Worth the Consequences. And, you know, Alan, as I was on my flight up to New York, and this goes to your book, I was, uh, you know, going back through the book, as I typically do before interviews and different chapters, and I noticed the reaction of people around me. The negative faces, literally, and a couple of people who saw, you know, your name and the the price of principle, and then also a couple who said hi to me and on the way off the plane made a comment about it. But it goes to the price of principle. You've stood up on principles over the years. Uh, You, as you uh, outline in this book, uh, focus on three sets of principles that have guided you and you've written about in others. Freedom of expression and conscience, due process, fundamental fairness, and the adversary system of seeking justice, and basic equality and meritocracy. And I think I saw a microcosm of that just on the reaction to you and your book. Well, the reaction has been very strong. Somebody sent me an email a couple of months ago that they were reading my book on the beach, and uh, somebody pushed them and shoved them and punched them, saying, why are you reading a book by that terrible person who, you know, who basically defends Donald Trump? <laughs> you know, uh, I didn't vote for Donald Trump. I voted against him twice. I will probably vote against him a third time if he runs for election. I'm a liberal Democrat, but I put my commitment to the Constitution and to principles before partisanship. And so I've been uh, defending President Trump against an unconstitutional impeachment um, back in 2020 and uh, against uh, questionable and unjust searches. Um, Again, I'm not a supporter of his. I do support his policies on the Middle East and some other policies, but uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not somebody who votes for him. So uh, these principles have look, I'll give you another story less, less dramatic than somebody getting punched out on the beach. But I was seated next to Caroline Kennedy at a dinner party after I began to defend President Trump. And she said to me, if I knew you had been invited, I would have not come to this and suggesting that she wouldn't be in the same room with somebody who defended President Trump, even though she's now the ambassador to Australia and is supposed to be in the same room with the head of China, the head of North Korea and other really dangerous, dangerous people. You know, I I didn't think quickly enough to remind her that she should reread her father's book, Profiles and Courage, and not attack somebody who's had the courage to stand up for principle. But uh, I didn't have the wherewithal to uh, to make that point at that time, but I'm making it now. Yeah, and by the way, on the raid of Mar-a-Lago, you've weighed in on that as well. Your article in The Hill uh, on the Justice Department that they they should have subpoenaed the documents, not raided the former president's home. Yeah, or enforced the subpoena that they already had. And now the Wall Street Journal today has a serious article about the unconstitutionality of the search and the argument that's made in the paper today is that President Trump was legally entitled to hold on to these materials as long as they were kept in a secure place. I don't know whether that's right or wrong. All I know is it's a it's an arguable position. And when you have two sides of, a, of an argument, 
um, you don't go for a search warrant. You go for a subpoena, and then the court can resolve those legal issues. Were the documents privileged? Were they classified? Did the president have a right to have them? Those are issues that should be resolved by a court or a special master, not uh, by a search warrant, which goes into a safe, it goes into the closet of his wife, uh, a very, very broad search. So I would be making the same argument if Hillary Clinton had been subject to that search. The difference is that the, the anti-Trump zealots are total hypocrites. They, they've made arguments like this when it comes to um, people who they support and admire, but they suddenly forget the Fourth Amendment and uh, the Constitution when it comes to somebody who they despise like Donald Trump. So that double standard doesn't work in America. You know, to go beyond Trump on this, and I don't want to get too bogged down in this because you, you examine so much in the book that, you know, considering we live about 15, 20 minutes apart, one day we should just sit down with a recorder sure. and a few hours <laughs> and we can we can get this done. We, we can get at least a good amount of this done. Uh, but to go beyond that, the, the unequal application is a problem for many Americans where you have clear evidence on video, for example, of someone who should be looked into, like Hunter Biden, someone who lies on his, uh, what is it, the 4473 on a federal firearms licensing form uh, on other things. And then you have other things that are tangential, but yet sourced by email, in fact, or even to the point of Hillary, when Americans look at this and the destruction of emails, the bleach bit episode and others, you know, Americans are fundamentally fair. They want to be it just seems like not only bad ideas, but bad policy to be that that obvious about it. Well, that's why I think we need to see this, the, the affidavit um, publicly revealed with appropriate redactions for us to get a sense of whether there was equal treatment, whether the shoe comfortably fit on the other foot, whether or not the Justice Department would have conducted a search. Uh, of Hillary Clinton. They didn't. Uh, I mean, a massive search like this, they subpoenaed um, uh, and Andrew Weiner's uh, um, um, a computer, uh, or whether they would have conducted a search of Sandy Berger, who had put classified material into his sock. I mean, Americans, you're right, demand equal treatment. And, uh, and I think the affidavit will go a long way toward indicating whether or not uh, President Trump, now Mr. Trump, received equal treatment. All right, let's go to some other things because we are here to talk about the book. And by the way, well done. Uh, you start out by writing, this is my 50th book and I'm having trouble getting two done. So I need to come spend some time with you on this one. <laughs> well, if you spend time with me, you won't be writing your book. So uh, <laughs> Point taken. you have to spend time writing your book. I write every single day. I wrote this morning. And, uh, you know, it's something I love to do. So... 50 books. I'm already pretty much finished 51. I'm part of the way through 52. Uh, I'm going to be 84 next week. So I'm, you know, hoping to get to 60 or 70, but don't know. <laughs> well, I, I'm putting my money on Dershowitz on this one. Thanks. Uh, partisanship principle and the price of principle. Look, I think most people saw the stories, what I call the Nantucket crowd that shunned you, you know, because you dared to stand up for what it's you Mar believe. It's Martha's Vineyard. No, no, no I'm sorry, the Martha's Vineyard crowd. I, I get my islands mixed popular. up off I'm the cave. I'm very popular on Nantucket. Okay, and, so you're uh, still good on Nantucket. All right, that's good uh, yeah, to hear. Yeah. But, but what, this, this idea 
that if you dare stand up as you have throughout your life, whether in agreement or disagreement with either side for what you believe is the right application under the Constitution, the, the role of the various branches of government, the elements of government, the Supreme Court, for example, uh, has, has garnered you a lot of scorn uh, from people who, frankly, are, as I see it, wrong because they're not open to the arguments. How do we get past that point or how do we attack that problem of not being open to the argument and not engaging in critical thinking, which seems to be pushed aside for indoctrination? Well, there are two points. One, personal people who don't want to have anything to do with me because I defended Trump. These are like the people who didn't want to have anything to do with lawyers who defended communists during the 1950s. They were called McCarthyites. The people on Martha's Vineyard and Chulmark are, are modern McCarthyites. But the worst thing is that the library wouldn't allow me to speak. I've spoken there uh, almost every year to big crowds. And then they come up with an excuse saying, I can't speak there anymore because the crowds are too big. It reminds me of, you know, Yogi Berra's famous statement. Nobody goes to that restaurant anymore because it's too crowded. Um, they could easily have just restricted the crowd. But they decided not to let me speak solely because I had defended President Trump. They also refused to carry any of the books I wrote. I wrote nine books between the time I started to defend President Trump and the current time. And suddenly, though they had 20 of my previous books, they refused to have any of my books to be circulated to readers. So, you know, that's more than just attacking me. That's denying the people of Martha's Vineyard the right to hear me speak, the right to read my books. That's a fundamental denial of the First Amendment done by a governmental unit, namely the library, the Chilmark Library. My guest, Alan Dershowitz, uh, professor, lawyer, media contributor, author, so many things else we could say. Uh, but his new book, The Price of Principle, Why Integrity is Worth the Consequences. Let, let's kind of flip sides, perspectives, Alan, you and I both like that. Uh, other times when you've been attacked by, say, those on the right for a stance for someone who falls on the left, for instance, uh, are making the case against a Biden impeachment I have a strategic reason for it, uh, for thinking the way I do. What about yours? Well, I just apply the same principle. If Biden were to be impeached for committing a crime, treason, bribery, or high crimes and misdemeanors, I would not try to defend against that. Um, but if he were charged with abuse of power, which, of course, some Republicans think he's guilty of, or for obstruction of Congress— uh, I would defend him with as much vigor. Remember, I helped to defend Bill Clinton against his impeachment. I defended Senator Alan Cranston, the Democrat. I defended uh, Ted Kennedy um, at Chappaquiddick. In fact, the reason I came to Martha's Vineyard 50-something years ago was to help defend Ted Kennedy and Chappaquiddick. So I don't pick my clients based on politics or partisanship or whether they're likable or not or whether I agree with them or not. I defended the right of Nazis to march through Skokie, the right of communists to teach uh, math at Brooklyn College or languages, even though I hate communism, I hate Nazism. So, you know, people don't understand principle today. Principle today is old-fashioned. Um, Nonpartisanship is old-fashioned. Neutrality is old-fashioned. Nuance is old-fashioned. Today, if you want to get Trump, anything goes. Doesn't matter. Look at my colleague Lawrence Tribe at Harvard. He urged the Attorney General of the United States to prosecute Donald Trump for attempting to murder Vice President Pence. 
That may be the stupidest single statement I have ever heard a law professor make in the 60 years I've been in this business. And yet he's adored by the hard left because he meets the test. Get Trump. He's willing to get Trump no matter what. He is not a man of principle. He is not a man of integrity. He is not a man of neutral application to the Constitution. And for that reason, he's beloved because the hard left doesn't want people of principle. They want people of partisanship. And he fits that criteria. You know, principle, I believe, will do much more for this country than the occasional arguments. And principle is also about structure and process. Let's talk about the Supreme Court for a moment. And you write about this, uh, particularly I like your uh, your examination uh, on page 84 when you talk about abortion, gun control, and court packing, uh, taking an approach, again, from your perspective as well, uh, but that is what that is an area abortion and gun control and given current court decisions the new york case on gun control uh roe v wade and the mississippi case and in all of this so much is miscast or deliberately lied about in the media rather than reporting on what happened what the role of the court is what the state's rights component of it is versus the supremacy of the federal government or where supremacy doesn't exist well, and the, the big villains are the media. Um, CNN never reports accurately on the courts. They hire people to be commentators who will not analyze these factors, but wrongly predict how the court will come out. And they almost always get it wrong because they don't predict accurately. What they do is they engage in wishful thinking. Uh, the New York Times the other day runs a, an op-ed by two professors, one from Yale, one from Harvard Law School, uh, urging basically that we ignore the Constitution and that the Constitution hasn't served us well. And, uh, uh, you know, these kinds of arguments, and it's all part of get Trump. Anything goes when the interests are in getting Trump. And the media has, has pushed that very hard. And I think our divided media today, where you can't watch Walter Cronkite as you used to be able to, Walter Cronkite couldn't get a job today on television because he's not ideological enough he's not polemical enough he's not one-sided enough you know one side wants to report only its narrative and the other side wants to report only its narrative where do you go to get the accurate assessment well you read my book because i think it does uh, analyze all these issues gun control uh, abortion uh by principle not by partisanship i you know my own personal views may be very different. 50 years of teaching at Harvard, I never expressed a personal view in class. My job was not to teach the students what to think. It was to teach them how to think. And I think I did a good job on 10,000 students over the years. Many of them are now leaders. Many of them are now in the Senate and Congress on the Supreme Court. And I hope I helped teach them how to think objectively and by principle. Well, it is important. I want to take on something else. And boy, I got to tell you, Alan, uh, on a systemically racist nation, chapter 10, I, I wish yeah. I had had this book when I went to Oxford to debate on whether America is institutionally racist or not. Matter of fact, if they, they have invited me back, so if they do, Good. maybe I can talk you it. into yeah. it. <laughs> to come with me but but you take on this issue uh with the question are we a systemically racist nation so without giving them the whole chapter let's hear it well today we are a systemically anti-racist country we were a systemically racist systemically anti-catholic systemically anti-semitic semitically you know systemically obviously anti-black 
anti-Latino for many years, but that's all turned around. And today the laws favor affirmative action. In fact, you can argue that we now are beginning to approach a situation where there's racism in, in reverse. Take, for example, a house in Berkeley. Um, Berkeley, you know, California has a very tough civil rights law. It doesn't allow discrimination. But this house, which uh, is used by Berkeley students, is not part of the university. It's a private house. But it's called, you know, the House for the People of Color, and it restricts the access to the house of white people. If the shoe were on the other foot, if there were an old white house that restricted the access to the house against black people, everybody would be up in arms. So, no, we're not a systemically racist country. We're a country with pockets of racism on both sides still left, and we're fighting against it. Supreme Court will decide next year whether Harvard can have an admissions program which explicitly or implicitly favors uh, black applicants over Asian applicants. And uh, I suspect the Supreme Court will rule that, no, that would be illegal. So you know, we, we confront racism. We encounter it. There's plenty of it, but not systemic. Yeah, I mean, the story that I covered yesterday on the show about the teachers union that has decided that you can fire white teachers, even those with tenure or more seniority, ahead of blacks to reverse uh, the issue. And you make this point in the book uh, quite often that two constitutional wrongs don't make a constitutional right. Yeah. No, in fact, when you have two constitutional wrongs and they're treated differently, it makes a third wrong. And that's what we have to deal with. We have to make sure that all of our decisions are governed by principle because principles are what keeps us the United States of America, the greatest country in the history of the world, the greatest um, civil libertarian country. And we're losing some of that now. We're losing it to other countries. And I, I'm, I'm fearful that the hard left will turn America into what they regard as a utopia, but for many would be a dystopia, a, a country where there's rights for me, but not for the speech for me, but not for the due process for me, but not for the. That's why I wrote the book, The Price of Principle, to make sure that our principle of equality and due process and free speech and the adversary system remain intact, uh, despite the fact that it's being attacked in academia, it's being attacked by the left, it's being attacked by the hard extreme right as well. Look, the hard right, the hard, hard right, and the hard, hard left have much more in common. Than, than differences. They both have totalitarian mindsets. They both think they know the truth, and they both don't understand the reason why we need to have dissent. You know, it's a, a, I don't know if it's a simple question, probably not a simple answer. Uh, but in closing for this portion, Alan, and I, and I hope we continue to reconnect on this because sure. it's been a while. For me personally, it's easy and it's become easier to live by principle uh, by taking myself out of the debate at times and putting forth the items in the debate or that should be there none of us are perfect but i work hard to do that on writing about abortion and policy and religion and science and the constitution for example recently i deliberately wrote in the article i'm taking myself out i don't have a point of view and i find that easier to do, but for some they can't. How do we, how do we get to that point where people can remove themselves, even a personal feeling? Not that you shouldn't have them, but I think that's a better approach. 
No, you're absolutely right. My wife tells me that all the time. She says my books, uh, particularly this book, The Price of Principle, is too personal because I do tell the story about how my wife, uh, who didn't even want me to defend uh, President Trump, went to a gym to work out and somebody said, oh, my God, that's Alan Dershowitz's wife. I'm getting out of there. I can't be in the same room with her. You know, so I tell these stories about me, my family um, and my friends or my former friends. But then I generalize from my personal to more general points of view. But I agree with you. I don't allow my personal views of, for example, a woman's right to choose abortion, which I personally favor. But constitutionally, I know there are some questions about it or the Second Amendment. I personally don't like guns, but I understand that the Second Amendment was written by the framers of our Constitution and has to be given full effect. I want to understand it and use it in the way that the Second Amendment was intended, but I don't allow my personal views on abortion or guns to influence my constitutional analysis, unlike some others. Alan Dershowitz, The Price of Principle, Why Integrity is Worth the Consequences. Uh, Book number 50. Okay, so the challenge now is can I get one done before you do two more? We'll see, Alan. We will see. Thanks a lot. Good luck. (laughs) Take care. I need it. Thank you, Alan. Alan Dershowitz, uh, read this book, folks. I've read a lot of his books over the years. I I poured through this one. There's a great deal in there. Principle Matter. You can join me live on The David Webb Show Monday to Friday, 9 to noon East on Sirius XM Patriot 125.